Well, today we are continuing our message series on Jesus' parables. I want to start with a quiz. So uh, I'll put these questions out there. You take your best guesses at it, and then we'll look at a slide with the answers. But the first uh, set is this. Which country has the largest population? Guesses? China? Okay. What's the world's tallest mountain? How about what type of tree is the tallest? Okay. Who's the world's richest man? He was for four years, and then Bill Gates got his, got his uh, riches man position back. All right, this uh, 2015, I think. All right, so which country is the largest population? China, 1.3 billion. What's the world's tallest mountain? Mount Everest. What type of tree is the tallest? A redwood. And who's the richest man? Bill Gates. All right. So, uh, so far, so good. Now we're going to take another quiz and talk about the smallest, uh, smallest things. Which country has the smallest population, and what is the country? Okay, that's your guess? All right. What's the world's smallest mountain? (laughs) In the Guinness Book of World Records, too. Okay. Uh, What type of tree is the shortest? And who's the world's poorest man? Okay, these are a little more. Paul thinks it's him. Sorry, I didn't didn't find you on the internet, Paul. Well, there you go. That's a good one, but that's not what I had. Let's go to the... All right, the Vatican City is its own country, population 850, approximately a half square mile. Uh, World's smallest mountain is Mount Greylock. What type of tree is the shortest is the dwarf willow. It's five, five centimeters when it's full grown. And then who's the world's poorest man? Oh, my goodness, his name's not on there. Huh? Is there another slide? All right, I don't remember his name, but he, <laughs> he is in debt, $6 billion. So uh, he's, he's also in jail, by the way. <laughs> I'm not ready for a geography quiz. I don't know. I just... (laughs) Forrest is headed for the phone, though, to to find it for you. Yeah, no, I just uh, did the uh, uh, search. Mount Greylock, shortest uh, mountain. But anyway, so I'm guessing that you all did better on the first quiz than the second. And the point of it is that we tend to... Uh, remember to think about to recognize and respect big things. Uh, we tend to give a little thought to small things. We reward, you know, big achievements. We aim for big incomes. Take notice of, you know, large vehicles, even though they pay big at the gas station. We notice big because big gets attention in our culture, in our world. We can sometimes fall into the trap of measuring our usefulness and our value 
by how talented or how intelligent or how important or how rich we are. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus um, says big isn't always best. And that's the point that he gets across to his followers in the parable that we're going to look at today. As we continue our series on Jesus' parable, we're going to look at two stories where Jesus is talking about how the kingdom of God works. They're found in Luke uh, chapter 13, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And um, once again, last week I was telling how often Jesus, when he told parables, he told them in pairs. He would tell one parable that kind of spoke to men and relate, men could relate to, and then he would tell a second parable that women would relate to, and that's true in this case as well. So Luke 13, starting in verse 18, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree. And the birds perched in its branches. Then he tells a second parable. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? And he says, it is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it had worked all through the dough. So Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? And, you know, we sometimes try to define the kingdom of God. And if you look online, you can find definitions for it, uh, such as a spiritual realm over which God is sovereign or anywhere that God is ruling. But Jesus never defined the kingdom of God in those kinds of terms. He just told stories to help people understand and visualize what the kingdom was like. And in this first image, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a small mustard seed, which a man took, he planted in the ground, and then it grew and became like a a large bush that birds could perch in and animals could take shelter under. And the mustard seed is a very, very small seed, right? Um, It was the black mustard seed is the the smallest seed that they sowed at that time uh, in that part of the world. And because the size of the mustard seed is so small... Um, it seems to be insignificant. And today, like when we're talking about, you know, we call somebody pea-brained or whatever, you know, we try to think about the smallest thing, that your brain is about that big. Well, in that day, they would have said, you're a mustard seed brain, you know, because that was the thing that they compared everything to when they were talking about something being small. And so for Jesus to picture the kingdom of God as a mustard seed, that would have been absurd to them. I mean, they were expecting the kingdom of God to come in great power. But even though the mustard seed's a tiny, tiny seed, Jesus was saying that it would grow and that it would be a mustard tree or bush, whatever, uh, grows to 10 feet high. So that as high as a basketball uh, uh, rim or hoop or whatever, uh, and, and big enough for birds to perch in. And then in the second illustration, Jesus says that God's kingdom is like the yeast that a woman took. She worked it into uh, some flour and made uh, made dough. And, of course, Jesus undoubtedly would 
have watched his mother make bread as he was growing up in that culture. You know, they don't go buy, you know, wholesome bread or whatever at the store or Aunt Millie's. They, they made their own bread, and Jesus would have seen his mother working the yeast into the dough and how it would permeate the dough, and, and uh, then the dough would rise and it would make these loaves of bread. But the, the thing about this parable that's so important is that when a woman back then would take yeast... You know, they didn't buy Red Star or whatever at the store either. They would save a little dough from the day before, a little uh, ball of dough, and then they would work that into the next day's uh, batch of dough and let it rise. And what is so uh, absurd about this parable is she's working it into 60 pounds of flour. That'll make enough bread to feed 100 people. And there's no woman that would have had an oven in Jesus' day that would bake, you know, this 100, pound, 100 loaves of bread uh, for, for people. And so what he's saying is that the kingdom of God starts small uh, from small things and can grow to immense uh, proportions and have huge influence. So as I said last week, whenever... Ever Jesus told a parable, he was inviting people to think differently, to change, the, change something in their life. Uh, he's in, there's an invitation in every parable. So we're going to look at the invitations of these two parables. And in these two parables, Jesus is, is inviting us to, if you want to pull out your message notes, the first thing he is inviting us to is to believe that in the kingdom of God, small beginnings have can have a big impact and if you think about uh throughout scripture you know when god wanted to create uh the people of israel people for his own he didn't start with a large family he started with two people right abraham and sarah and they're both too old to conceive a child right but he starts with these two people and now they have descendants too numerous to count And when God wanted to lead his people out of slavery, he took one man who had been rejected by his own people and who had spent 40 years leading sheep around in the desert, and he uses him him, to lead them out. When God came as a human being, he didn't, uh, Jesus wasn't born to the rich and famous uh, couple that lived in a castle. He was born to a peasant couple uh, and a seemingly unimportant family. When Jesus wanted to feed 5,000, he took a little boy's lunch, right? And he multiplied it and fed the, the masses. God uses small things to do big stuff. And, you know, we can kind of get caught into that trap, as I was saying earlier, of thinking that our gifts aren't good enough or big enough or we don't have enough smarts or uh, abilities or skills to be used by God. But what we discover all through Scripture is that what might seem insignificant and small, God sees as something that he can use to accomplish his purposes. First um, Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says this. This is our memory verse, so let's read it together. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
Nothing you ever do. That's a lot, right? The small things, the big things, none of it's ever wasted in the kingdom of God. God uses small beginnings to make a big impact. Then the second um, thing that God invites us to is to remember that God isn't limited by our limitations. The things that we see as limitations, God's not limited by those. We count ourselves out when God hasn't. And throughout Scripture, we see that God chooses the least likely, uh, the most unexpected people to do great things. And, you know, I was imagining, thinking about what it would be like to be on the playground with God as a coach. You know, that skinny kid that can't hit, can't catch, keeps tripping over his own feet and, and loves to play ball so much that he'll stand there every recess and wait to be chosen last, you know, in order to play right field behind the center fielder who has slipped over to cover for him. You know, God would choose that kid first. Uh, can you imagine the look on his face <laughs> or her face? Uh, and scripture says that we are that kid. First uh, Corinthians 1, 26 and 29 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. God loves to, to use what seems weak in the eyes of the world, and when he does, uh, he gets the glory. God uses small things. You know, I, I like this scripture because... You know, I didn't. I certainly wasn't born into nobility. I was born on a farm, and and my mom brought me home, and uh, we we had a, this red plastic tub that we used to uh, use for our swimming pool. You know, it was about this big, and we'd fill it with water, and we'd each take turns getting into it. And one day, my mom told me that was your bassinet when I brought you home from the hospital. You know, it was a, a laundry tub. We didn't have a lot, but. God uses small things, insignificant people, untalented people, unrecognized people, unsure people, uncoordinated people, people with a checkered past, people who are poor, uh, people with pedigrees, people who, with funny looks, people with medical diagnosis, broken people, old people, young people, to do great things. And God will work through you, through your ministry, however big or small, to do more than you can ask or imagine if you trust him. God isn't limited by our limitations. And then the third invitation Jesus extends here, Jesus invites us to realize that the kingdom of God often grows and is made visible one small act of kindness at a time. Uh, We get our word ministry from a Latin word uh, root that means small things, as in the word minuscule. Uh, ministry is involved in small things. We are involved in little acts and small gestures and everyday service. And just like God can bring uh, growth from a, you know, a significant tree out of a tiny seed, he can do the same with you and me. And to illustrate, I, I have another uh, quiz for us. Can anyone name the last five Heisman Trophy winners? 
Uh, well, here, here you go, Linda. Name the last five winners of Miss America contest. <laughs> I, bet the, I bet they were all women, though. All right. Uh, name ten people who have won the Nobel, Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. There, finally. Uh, name the Academy Award winner for the Best Actor and Actress in 1992. <laughs> okay. The point is, none of us can remember the headlines of yesterday. And, and these are no second-rate uh, achievers. They're the best of the best in their field. But the applause dies, the awards tarnish, achievements are forgotten, accolades and certificates are buried with their owners. But here's another quiz, and I printed it in your bulletin so you can look at it a little uh, longer and think about it later. But let's see how you do on this one. Uh, list a teacher who influenced your life. Name a friend who helped you through a difficult time. Name someone who inspired you to do something you wouldn't have done without their encouragement. Think of someone who makes you feel appreciated. And the lesson is the people that make the difference in our lives are not the ones with the most credentials or the most money or the most awards. They're the ones who do small things with great love. And Mother Teresa once said, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. And, you know, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about that um, another parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 where he talks about at the end of the age when uh, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. You know, the, uh, he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And these are people who he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to. And it's the people on the right, the sheep. He's going to say, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your father's kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison? And he's going to say, whenever you did it for the least of these, your brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And if you look at the actions that Jesus noticed and said will be rewarded, they aren't big enterprises. They are small, simple acts of love. And acts that require sacrifice and sometimes risk, but they make a difference in the world. You know, I remember the first time I went to visit anyone in jail. Uh, there was a family in our church. Their daughter had been arrested for using drugs and prostitution, and she was in jail. And they asked me if I would go visit. And, you know, this was visiting jail not like you see on TV where you go in and there's a window and you're protected from you know, the uh, uh, prisoners uh, talking through a little window, this is going inside the jail. And so I was kind of nervous about it, and I called the chaplain and asked for, you know, what do I do, uh, what, some directions of some kind. So he said, you go in, you get your, tell them you're a pastor, get a clergy tag, then you go uh, through the door to your right, turn left, go down, uh, sign in, knock on a window, uh, then go through the door when they uh, release it, go to the right, then go left around a big cage over to an elevator, and it's just going on 
like this, and he's, you know, he's done it a thousand times, and so he's just talking through, and I'm scribbling all these in- instructions down about how to get there, and he's telling me what not to do, or you'll be, you know, in jail with the rest of them, but um, anyway, so I'm scribbling this all down. Then a week later, my background check passes, which you're all glad to hear, I'm sure, but um, anyway, so I look at my notes uh, a week later, and I can hardly read it. Is that right? Is that left? Uh, and uh, so that I go in, uh, and there's a person in line in front of me, and she says, I'm a pastor, and I'm here to visit so-and-so. And I'm thinking, oh, God, thank you uh, for sending somebody. I'll just follow her. And she says, uh, but I need to use the restroom, so don't buzz me in right now. And I'm like, oh, you know, what? That's wonderful timing. So I do the same thing. I get my clergy tag. I wait for her to come out of the bathroom. We go through the first door, and she sees that I have written instructions. And she starts thanking God for providing somebody (laughs) with written instructions. (laughs) So now she's following me. And um, we make our way somehow, by God's mercy, through this maze and up to where the prisoners are. And we're standing there. And this woman uh, says to me in this beautiful uh, kind of Australian accent, I was having a wonderful time with the Lord before I came. And he said, how much it pleases him to come here. And, you know, I had been looking all, they said, the chaplain had said I could bring something for a Bible study or something. So I had spent hours looking for just the right thing and couldn't find anything. And I I felt so bad about going empty-handed. And it was like Jesus was saying to me, you're bringing the most important thing. You're bringing my presence. And, you know, sometimes I think we can make excuses for um, not having anything too big to offer. But most of the time, what's needed is a small act done with great love. One small sacrifice of time or money or encouragement or assistance that makes Jesus' love visible. Uh, I did an internship uh, at Bronson Hospital when I was in seminary. And uh, I can't count the number of times when I would walk into a room, introduce myself as a chaplain, and the tears would just flow. And, you know, I hadn't done anything or said anything. I was just a reminder that God had not forgotten them. And Jesus was always showing that the kingdom of God isn't something that you can locate on a map. You can't fly over with a jet and say, there it is, you know, there's Vatican City or whatever, that the kingdom of God is growing and made visible through us. We're the ones that God is looking to, to to permeate our area, to feed, to clothe, to restore broken people. We're the ones he's sending out to seek and find people who are living their lives far away from God and to help them come into a relationship with Jesus. Every small act done with great love makes a difference. If you'll go ahead and pull out your connection card, there's some ways uh, to respond to the message today. The first is to memorize our memory verse, but the second says I'm going to watch for and respond to opportunities this week to make Jesus' love and his kingdom visible. And then the uh, the third says I'm going to take time to 
think uh, one of the people that came to mind when we looked at the small acts quiz. Uh, we're not taking uh, others for granted as uh, God works through others to, to minister to us. Let's pray together. Lord God, uh, it's so easy to think that a kindness is uh, not that important, but we see it all the time in our lives uh, how surprised we are when someone acts kindly towards us in unexpected ways. Help us, God, to be aware of those opportunities we have and to remember always to try to find a way to connect it to you and why we're doing it. God, I know that you uh, love all the people in this area. I thank you for this church and the ministry that it's had. I pray that you'll help us to continue to make the most of every opportunity we have, as Paul says in um, to to uh, make your love and your kingdom visible. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.